I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. Seth, it's great to see you today. It is great to see me. Good to see you as well, Luke. You know, I have to tell you, I think it was our last episode or maybe the second to last. I don't know. But whenever we talked about keeping Christ in Christmas, um, there's part of that episode that our whole family has re-listened to over and over and over. And we just laugh every time. And it's the part where you talk about keeping Christ in Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> we just over like Hank. Little Hank, five years old, will often just randomly walk up to me and go, we're keeping Christ in Christmas. Merry <laughs> Christmas. We've listened to it on slow-mo. I mean, the whole thing. It oh, is man. like, it just tickles us I'm, every time. I'm so, so glad I can add to your holiday spirit and joy. Oh, man. Well, I laughed in the moment, and then ever ever since, I just keep laughing at it. So um, anyway, thanks for that. And uh, we have, as promised, a special guest today. Welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Matthew Brazelton. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Great to see you, man. Yeah, I'm glad you. that you're joining us. And so the reason Matthew's joining us is because this is a special bonus type episode uh, where we're going to continue what we did uh, the first Sunday in January with ask anything. So we got gobs and gobs of questions that day more than we can answer. And actually, we've compiled kind of all the leftover questions. And there's almost 80 of those, which is more than I think we want to try to answer all of those as well. But we want to try to give as much time as we feel like is responsible to try to answer as many of these as we can. So here's what we're going to do in this episode is there's kind of about, I don't know, about six categories. There's sort of theology, Christian living and relationships, evangelism and missions, cultural issues, uh, questions about our church at Gateway, and then just kind of miscellaneous questions. And what I think I want to do is just kind of rotate through, sort of take a question from each category, and we'll just see how far we get and uh, and go from there. So... Sound good? Sounds good. Are you guys ready to go? All right. All right, so here is the first question. This is kind of in a theology category. If someone was isolated their entire life and never heard about a God at all in their lifespan, would God have mercy on them? Similarly, how can those who are illiterate, mentally challenged, or even in a, you know underdeveloped country who are good people, but how can they be saved if they don't know about Jesus, if they don't find Jesus, if they don't hear about Jesus, what happens to them? It's a great question. I think the first thing that I want to take a step back and look at this that I bring into this question is one, my belief that God is a good judge and he's a better judge than me. He's a better judge of hearts. He's a better judge mm -hmm. of knowledge. And so I don't want to be in this position of believing that I'm judging God's judgment. And so before I, what well, this is like at every funeral I preach, at every person I consider at a distance or up close, I really want to remind myself that God is a better judge than I am. And so even if it seems like I'm going to disagree with his judgment on something, I, I want to kind of believe that I'm the wrong person before I believe God's wrong. So that's number one. Number two, I want to understand and recognize what the Bible teaches about sin and fallenness in every single human person. We would hold to what uh, theologians call pervasive depravity or total depravity, not meaning that every person is as bad as they could be, but every person is equally fallen and every person is equally um, in bad standing before God. Uh, that all uh, have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3 talks about. And so there's no real, it, I mean, there can be, so when we say someone's a good person, we can might we might be saying that they're nice or they're kind from time to time. They may do more good deeds than they do bad deeds. That's what we kind of functionally say. But biblically speaking, we talk about someone being good, 
there's really only one truly good person, and that is the Lord himself. There's only one sinless person, Jesus himself. And so we can't look at anybody and believe that they have right standing before God on their own, period, the end. Whether someone was born in Tucson or Phoenix or Sub-Saharan Africa or in the Nordic regions, every person without exception, are equally cut off at the knees before the Lord, sinful, fallen, and deserving of wrath. And so someone having different degrees of access to special revelation, meaning how God's revealed himself in Jesus through the text of Scripture, um, does not change their position before God as a sinner deserving of judgment. And so one of the things we have to do as Christians is really believe on the front end that God could have saved nobody and he would have been just in doing so. And that's a hard emotional pill to swallow. And so nobody deserves salvation or a shot at salvation or a chance at salvation. Well, we don't deserve second chances, third chances, fourth chances. And so that high view of what I would call is God's holiness, meaning we're not entitled to anything from him and on basis of our sinfulness, we're all equally liable to judgment, I think matters a ton. The other thing I'd say is in Romans chapter 1, um, so I talked about special revelation, meaning how God's revealed himself in Scripture, but we all also believe that God's written two books. One book is the book of Scripture. The other book is the first book he wrote, which is the book of creation, that God reveals himself in the world. And so Romans 1 talks about how all persons are without excuse because God has made himself known in the creation, especially his uh, invisible attributes, that they are knowable. And so this knowledge of God as creator, knowledge of God as sustainer, knowledge of God as blesser, like the one who has made life better than it needed to be, that he creates tastes, touches, smells, scents, pleasure, that this is like the, the result of some sovereign being's benevolence, is fully noble outside of uh, even like the original text of Scripture. And so Romans 1 says, all people are without excuse who are all liable to judgment. The other thing I'd say is that we have examples in church history and in recent history of God revealing himself to people personally in dreams or the visions. And so geography and socioeconomic status are not in the way of God's mission. You know, yep. he's the hound of heaven. He's going to find people out. He's going to save his people. And so rather than seeing geography as an excuse, which Romans 1 says it's not, we want to see geography as an opportunity for God to save people by different means sometimes. But all people who are saved will be saved because they have knowledge and trust in the person Jesus, because all of us deserve judgment unless that judgment was poured out on someone else, which is Jesus. Well, this seems like partly why Jesus says in the Great Commission that we need to go into all the world and make disciples. I think it was John Piper who said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Yes. Right. We have to go take the gospel to people who don't have it. Um, and then we trust that God is gracious, that God is not going to judge unfairly, that God is not going to be unrighteous. And that all of, you know, the, the Lord of all the earth will do what's right. And so we rest in that. I'd, I'd also add just personally that I was wrestling with that question a ton when I was in my, I think when I was 20 years old at college, you know, can a good God really judge these people who blah, blah, blah. And then I realized that it was really me avoiding my responsibility to tell my neighbors about Jesus. Hmm. And I kind of had to check my heart and be like, I'm not telling the people down my street about Jesus. Why am I being preoccupied about the people mm. in other countries who don't know about Jesus? Yeah. It kind of feels like sometimes the right thing to do is to do the right thing in the sphere that you're in yeah. and not waste a bunch of emotional energy worrying about people you'll never meet or see um, on this side of heaven. Yeah. All right. Well, here's a, a shift changing gear. So this is more of like, a, you know, just how do you live 
your life as a Christian. And Matthew, you can start this one. Uh, what do you do when you don't feel like you have a purpose? Oh boy. Um, yeah. Me, me personally, what yeah. do I do? Yeah. You can start with just generally what you might recommend, but yeah, I think just understanding, uh, the purpose of God in creation and understanding kind of the role that we play in the story that God's writing th- throughout history, um, as revealed in the scriptures is like super important. So, uh, scriptures tell us that God created the world to glorify himself. I mean, he, he predestined us, um, to be for the praise of his glory even before creation existed. So all of creation declares his glory, uh, humanity kind of as the, the pinnacle of his creation created in his image exists to, um, to show the world what he's like and ultimately to live for the praise of his glory. And so we find our purpose kind of um, subsequent to that. So uh, I think it needs to roll up into that general category and then kind of understanding how the people of God have functioned throughout uh, the biblical story. I think of uh, Abraham in uh, Genesis 12 being called out um, as a chosen people uh, to be blessed so that the nations could be blessed through him. So God has always worked by calling people out, um, giving them blessing and giving them this mission to they're say, saying, basically I'm blessing you so you can be a blessing to others. Um, so that's so, kind of the macro level. I, I'd be curious as you guys think about this, how, cause maybe I'm reading too much into the question, but when you, what do you do when you don't feel like you have a purpose like I can imagine someone going, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blessed to be a blessing. I know I'm made by God. I know that yeah. gives me dignity and some level of purpose, but, but I just feel aimless. Mm. I don't know where I should be going. I don't know what I should be doing. It feels like all these people in my life have a thing. I don't have a thing. Yeah. Um, what, how, what, what do I do with that? I feel kind of malaise or apathy or just uncertainty. Like how do I discover not just like, the same purpose that me and everyone else have, but like my purpose, like what does God really want me to do on in my life? Yeah. I mean, I guess if you have, if you have a current vocation, something you're doing, you can do that to the glory of God. And that can be a, you know, mission fulfilling purpose. Um, if, if you're trying to decide what that is, I'd look at how has God uniquely wired you? Like what's your story? Um, what, what are your gifts, your talents, your, passions what doors has he opened um and i just keep walking through stuff and doing whatever you do to the glory of god until the lord makes it clear i i think for young people i just tell them try as many things as you can and um, work at them hard like hardly as unto the lord and uh and then see what what really resonates with you and what you love i think the idea of leveraging capital pops in my head and I think there's a lot of different types of capital. You know, there's financial capital, there's relational capital, there's intellectual capital, there's power capital. And by power, I mean like the ability to accomplish things, hard skills. And so I think taking like a capital inventory and going, who do I know? What do I know? What can I do? And asking the question, maybe probably bouncing it off a few mentor type figures, wiser people, successful people, people who are maybe doing stuff you like to do and, and saying, based on what I have, how can I leverage it to love my neighbor and increase capital? And so using capital, generate more capital and loving our neighbors is a big part of what subduing dominion is. And so I think some of that personal inventory stuff 
is really helpful. And a lot of times we're not as good at seeing ourselves as other people are at yeah, seeing us. It's good. And so asking people, like I think when I wasn't sure if I should go back to school and get a doctorate degree, I remember talking to five or six people and saying, can you give me like an assessment of me and mm-hmm. my capital, both relational, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, you know, this would be a good use of my resources. Cause I, I did, I was a little insecure about my ability to judge myself on would this be a good use of my time right now. Yeah. And, or do I have what it, do I have the horsepower to do it? And so I, I went and asked people and they kind of gave me levels of assessment and I ended up doing it. Yeah. I think this is a huge role for parents. Um, kids need direction from their parents on how they're wired, how they're created, what they're created to do. One of my big prayers for my kids is that they would know what they're created to do. Yeah. And I don't mean occupationally, I mean vocationally. So what what is it, how is it that God has uniquely created you to reflect his image in this world, no matter what you do, no matter where you go? Um, when you have that kind of sense of purpose, you can you can take that into all sorts of different avenues of life. Yeah. All right. Well, this one, uh, now we get uh, even more... Uh, oddly interesting so this one didn't make it on sunday um but we're doing it here now so here's the question if jesus were here now january 2022 do you think he'd wear a mask or get vaccinated and i don't think that's an either or i assume those are together like wearing a mask or get vaccinated feels like those are i think the question asker is asking those kind of in the same category not like would he do this or that but would how would he prioritize mask wearing? How would he prioritize vaccination? What would Jesus? Where's my well, bracelet? I need my WWJD well, bracelet. Here. What would Jesus do? Obviously, I'm vaccinated and don't wear a mask, so that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> so that's obviously Jesus would agree with me on everything. So that's what I think about that. Now, I do think so. First thing that popped in my mind is the story of Jesus touching the leper. You know, is mm-hmm. there's like this. Um, exposing himself to physical illness for the sake of like real meaningful human connection. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he would uh, shy away from the possibility of incurring something for the sake of love. So I think there is like a proximity priority relationships and that's not to say he would go around and super spreader everybody to pieces like I've also done, unfortunately. But I think, uh, human connection, proximity, closeness, physical touch. He touched people that people wouldn't touch. Yep. Like there, so there's something there that I think matters in terms of like a real physical presence embodiment that I don't think a a communicable disease would get in the way of. Yeah. Jesus actions were, um, hard for people to predict, but his heart, I don't think is hard to predict in this sense. Like his, he would, whatever he did, it would be motivated by love, not fear and not anger. Well, what's hard when it comes to thinking about about actions is like there are certain actions that are inherently loving, and there are certain actions that are not necessarily inherently loving. It just depends on the motive of the actor, right? So, um, if uh, somebody is uh, a brain surgeon, it doesn't really matter if they love the patient. What matters is the skill that they use in Mm. doing the surgery right and in a sense you could say well just doing the surgery well is an act of love regardless of the you know whatever's in the heart of the surgeon yeah um on the other hand there's lots of other things that are like was is this you know what's going on in the heart of a person and so i think that's some of what's in when i think about this question what's a little bit difficult is um 
is it definitely loving to do these precautionary things around people who are most vulnerable? Yes, absolutely. Um, would it be loving to wear a hazmat suit all the time in every situation to potentially protect anyone you might encounter from any possible thing? Well, that might be what's in your heart to do that, but it's not like that act is inherently loving. In fact, that could be inherently unloving uh, in certain situations because you couldn't relate to anybody. So it does feel like, it, I don't know that there's, I think people are looking for a real black and white answer on these kinds of things, yes or no, usually to support what they already think. Uh, yeah. But I but I think it's an interesting, uh, I think it's an interesting question. And, and I appreciate even the question because I think there is a tendency to go, well, I don't really care what Jesus would do. Here's what I want to do. Um, you know, what would Jesus yeah, do? And it's really important that we know that that is 100% speculative on what he would do. But the imaginative exercise in speculating is I think where a lot of the wisdom of Christ is found mm. is what would he do and why do I think he would do that and on what basis would he do what he did that's like the moral ethical process that all Christians should go through on yeah. this type of question even though we know it's speculative but that's like the formative process of going if Christ had all the information that I have what would he do mm -hmm. you know, if Christ was if Christ was tasked with making the choice that I'm now tasked with making, how would he go about making that choice? And I think that the exercise itself is the goal. Mm. And I, th all those questions would be asked. Yeah. We're a number of pastors um, on our staff right now are memorizing a portion of John four or yeah, John 14. And in that passage, Jesus makes it really clear that he does what the father is leading him to do. And so there's a, there's a deep intimate communion with the father there's almost a moment by moment dependence um, on understanding the heart of God and um, the purpose for which he's called. And, and that really drives his, his actions. So, um, you know, that's his guiding, that's kind of his guiding light. And so that's what he'd follow for sure. So would he wear a mask or get vaccinated? Yes or no? I mean, this is the hard part is I do think I asked those questions and I came to answers that are different than other people. And this is where I think the conscience of the Christian yeah. has to be respected because I, out of precaution early on, I wore a mask a lot and now I don't. And I have a clear conscience before the Lord and other people wore a mask a lot longer than I do and they still are. And that's what their conscience is requiring of them. And that, I think that's the hard thing is I don't want to speak definitively because that feels like I'm going to be binding the conscience of people, which mm. I think is beyond the scope. Yeah. But I do want to tell, I, like if Redemption Gateway, if everyone's legitimately wrestling asking that question, at this point, I don't really care where they land as long as they're fearing the Lord and not mm -hmm. taking the Lord's name in vain in yeah. that process. Yeah. Yeah, we'd be foolish to say definitively something we don't know. All right, uh, next question. Um, this is kind of a leadership question, I think. Um, what was your most challenging no to give in 2021? So as you think about last year, Ooh. what was the hardest thing to say no to? I'll say for me, it was kind of related to that last question. So we had a number of people who, um, I think for conscience reasons, felt like they did not want to have to comply to a employee-mandated vaccination who requested you know, can I get a religious exemption from, you know, church leadership in order to do that? And, um, you know, the answer was no. And on one hand, it wasn't challenging 
in terms of thinking through, is this a legitimate religious exemption case? That was not difficult. That was actually quite easy, right? Because the only way we'd say, hey, you know, religious exemption is valid is if we thought it was sinful to get vaccinated. Um, we don't feel like it's sinful to get vaccinated. So that, in a sense, was easy. But as I interacted with people who I think were experiencing more of the, like the conscience issue and feeling like, you know, I, I don't really, I can't give you a religious exemption for that. Um, but I feel the tension you're in and I feel the challenge you're having and the convictions you have around it. And even though I, I don't agree and I don't land in the same place and I, you know, would handle it differently, I think if I were you, um, you know, just experiencing kind of the, the challenges of that for some people, that was a hard thing to say no to. Um, in some ways for me, I don't know if that was the most challenging. No, but what about you guys? Uh, this isn't terribly profound, but, um, by the way, I'm just awful at questions that ask for any sort of the worst or the best or <laughs> whatever superlative you want to put. I suddenly, my, the brain, most challenging my brain just goes blank. What was a challenging? No, that you gave um, in 2020. We were, you know, we've been, um, we've just been excited that, you know, post lockdown where things are ramping back up and uh, we've had a lot of staff and a lot of leaders um, ask for, you know, want to start a lot of stuff. And there've been, there were initiatives or even classes and things that we've had to say no for now on just because of um, some of our kind of support staff and support space is not available. So that's been hard, but I mean, that's, Seth, what about for you? Yeah. You're good at you're better at saying no than some of us. Yeah, thinking about a hard no is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the the general there's a general category of no that's hardest for me, and it's when good people have good ideas mm-hmm. that I just don't think are best for the season, or they're going to push our staff beyond the limits, or they would require saying no to something else that's great, and so it's easy to say no to things from bad people who want bad things. Sure. You know, or whenever I feel like presumed on or people like expect things like those no's are very easy for me, but saying no to good people for good things that that has to happen every couple of weeks. Yeah. And every time it basically is equally awful. Like I just don't like it, mm-hmm. especially when it's like really awesome church members who love the ministry and love the church and have an idea and it's objectively good. It's just not, what is best for our staff or church in the season. And sure. I have to consider the whole, which often they don't, they're thinking about their thing, which is, this is good. Yeah. Are you not against this? And so that's just a bummer all the time. I, I also right. think set, settling real disputes between people we love within the church where they have drastically different opinions on something and you have to say no to one person. Um, yeah. Or, or, or your assessment of a conclusion is different right. than someone else's. And so, they can't imagine that you could see it the way yeah. that you see it, but yeah. you do see it differently and you have to make a decision. And so you yeah. disappoint them yeah, in a sense. To, you're yeah. saying like, no, I don't see it the way you see it. Right. Um, and that makes it harder for them to trust you or follow you or continue around. And we've had some situations yeah. like we had that. A real difficult year. situation like that this year. That was hard. That was probably the hardest, honestly. Yeah. All right. Um, the next question is kind of an evangelism missions question and, and a church question. So this person asks, what are our mission emphases locally, nationally, and internationally? Uh, so for Redemption Gateway, so I can kind of start with that. I guess the the emphasis locally is really on kind of our partners 
um, especially Hope Women's Center, especially Vineyard Pregnancy Center. Um, we also have uh, invested pretty significantly in Immigrant Hope. Um, so what those organizations are doing is really trying to help uh, those folks who are especially vulnerable, especially women and children, I think in the case of the Hope Women's Center and, and the Pregnancy Center. Um, as well as and that's also, you know, kind of what, our, yeah, the Compassion Care Center um, and all the kind of M25 food collections and other sorts of collections is really trying to go, who are the least of these? Who are the overlooked? Who are the, especially the kind of women and children who are in difficult spots? So that's a lot of what it looks like locally. Um, nationally, I don't know that we think of it quite nationally. I mean, there have been times over the years where we've been involved with helping different other church plants, especially. Um, but um, uh, it's interesting. I, this is international, but in a sense, it's pretty nearby is our investment in Juarez. So our, our connection yeah. with missions ministry there and they're partnered with a handful of other church, just local churches there. And so that's international, but it's a six hour drive. And so that's a pretty significant kind of place we invest. And then internationally, like overseas is really Turkey. That is our focus. That's our place. We've got a few different church planners we're partnered with and uh, participate with them in coaching and in financial support and, and just kind of coming alongside them. Turkey's a very underreached uh, place. I think in a country of about 90 million, there's somewhere around 8,000 Christians. Yeah. So it's uh, there's a big need there. So uh, yeah. that's kind of the focus there. And, and really, and that would be maybe going back to the last question, a place where sometimes we have to say no. Mm -hmm. is um, we felt like, you know, in order to really try to make a big impact, we want to limit the places that we focus on, um, which means that there are times when somebody wants to, you know, hey, could you support me to go here? Could you partner with me to go here to do that? Or I know I have these friends who, and oftentimes we have to say no because we really are trying to kind of, you know, laser focus our impact um, rather than just kind of do a bunch of broad stuff. Uh, one other thing is you... There's what we do corporately, formally, and there's what kind of just organically, relationally happens. Like you, mm -hmm. you mentor at Church Planner in Germany. Yep. You know, and you're our lead pastor, so. Kind so we do that. So we kind of do that, yeah. but it's really you doing that. I don't know if you want to tell anybody about that. Um, just that you, you I can do say that. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting place where he's a guy that I kind of got connected to in a random way that I don't need to tell the whole long story, but we developed a pretty significant connection. He ended up staying at my house for a week through kind of random circumstances. And at the end of that, he said, I hey, went to I'm, Santan flats with him. Yeah, you did. That's right. I forgot that. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, as a German, he wasn't real high on our beer here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I think, I think he was dogging our beer, but whatever. Um, anyway, but he, yeah, he said, that's Hey, a I'd a love for you to, sin. that's a forgivable <laughs> sin. I'd love for you guys to support me and this church plant. Um, you know, he's in, you know, a part that was East Germany, you know, behind the communist wall kind of thing. And anyway, I just said, hey, man, I'd love to. I mean, I really like you. I believe in what you're doing. I think it's really great, but we're focused on Turkey. So, no, I can't do that. Um, and he said, well, if you can't give financially, could you give some of your time by coaching me? And I said, well, I don't know anything about planting a church in a former communist country. Uh, and he said, no, but you know leadership and you know church planning. And I said, well, I'll, yeah, if you want that. And so a couple years later, he you know, still wants that. So yeah, we meet once a month and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there, and I'm sure that there are things lots of people in our church are doing, right. There's compassion kids that folks are sponsoring. There's, um, other missionaries and other works and other things that people are connected to. But in terms of what we're formally focused on at, at uh, gateway, that's, that's kind of what it is. All right. Um, 
here's kind of now in the back in the theology category. So why is the Bible formatted and arranged the way it is? Specifically, I mean, that's a there's a lot to that. But specifically, it's not always clear when it goes from poetic to literal. So one of the questions we got, I think, at the first service was about the relationship between Genesis. You know, should should the early parts of Genesis be taken literally or allegorically? This is kind of in that same spot, right, where you have some parts of Scripture that seem to kind of go from poetic to literal and back and forth. And maybe literal is not the right word. Um, so let's talk about that. How, how do you... How do you under how do you read the Bible when it's changing these kind of genres, and and then part of the question is like why doesn't the Bible sort of tell you when it's changing those genres yeah. or does it? It's really good. So first, the Bible is like Jesus; it's fully God and fully man, right? It's all human; it's all divine. And when you come to it with that recognition, we, a lot of times we tend to approach the Bible like it's the Quran, which is it's a hundred percent. They believe it's a hundred percent divine, and so there's less of a human element going on. Whereas we understand that truth comes through people and that's the way that God has chosen to work. And he's done so infallibly in the text of scripture. And the reason the Bible is written like it's written is because that's how people talk and interact. Right. If you're in a normal conversation and I'm driving home and I tell my wife, uh, I had a good day today and she, she says, Oh, what'd you do? So like, oh, I had lunch, talked with Joyce and Marty Lutri about yada, 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 yada. And I was like, and then there's this moment. It was magical. You know, Marty teared up talking about his conversion. And Joyce, there's like, it was magnetic. There's this connection. The moment seemed, the moment lasted for like three hours, but it was 20 minutes. And the music went quiet and the lights dimmed. And we had this like powerful moment sharing the story of when Marty first became a Christian. Like, so in a normal conversation, you bounce back and forth between very poetic, apocalyptic, dramatic retelling yeah. of real things. And so in our normal, normal conversation, we do that. And the closer you are to the person, the more you can discern, you know, and, and that's one of the things like even that Taylor works with some of her kids on when, when who have like developmental things is like helping people read between the lines. I got a buddy of mine who's pretty weird, and in high school, he would ask girls out, and they'd make all these excuses. Oh, I'm busy. I don't think I can. Uh, you know, I have a lot going on. And they were kind of being indirect with him because they were trying to be kind. And he ended up, like, asking them to be church disciplined for being liars hmm. because he couldn't figure out, he couldn't read between the lines on what they're getting at. And so we speak euphemistically. That's part of the way humans speak is we are, we are storytellers and poets by our nature. And that's the way that we speak in ordinary human conversation, unless we're like at work at Intel, you know, where, where the, the, we're talking about numbers and spreadsheets and stuff like that. And I'm sure that happens at Intel at certain departments, just maybe not the sure. computer science ones. So trying to like get to like the human side of those things. And I think part of it that amplifies and magnifies beauty. Like yeah. I remember being really mad at the poetic books because I just wanted truth and answers mm. on the good, true and beautiful kind of trifecta i just was concerned about true but the more i am more concerned about beauty and goodness the more i see the poetic aspects and like the wrestling that it creates and the the design and the way that poetry forms you and it makes you have to be a patient person it, it's not just informing you but it's helping you see mm -hmm. and how that's part of our spiritual formation as well that we're worshiping this beautiful god not mm -hmm. just a true god and so that's part of the reason why it's written like that it's human it's how humans talk it's how humans write 
and it's part of the human experience is these multiple genres like facts matter and emotions matter and word pictures matter. And so that's, it's yeah. all part of the so, process. So I want to kind of have a little bit of a follow up there. So um, talk about the word literal. Like when people say, do you take the Bible literally? Is there a better way to talk about that or a better way to think about that? Yeah. Cause I find that word to be like a little too limiting um, when, when I've taught how to read the Bible class here, I'd say we don't take the Bible literally. We take it seriously. We submit to it and we obey it. Yeah, it's true. I think truth is a better idea than lit- like literal is not even like a category that people had when most of these people were writing. Yeah, sometimes like liberal theologians who think we should not be submitting to the text of scripture will make fun of evangelicals or fundamentalists for taking the Bible literally. And then in reaction, people who want to take the Bible seriously say like, no, we take it literally. Right. And there's like quotes, people say either you literally read the Bible or you literally don't read the Bible and that kind of rhetoric. And so the literal word gets caught up in this kind of war between people who think miracles happen and who are people who think miracles didn't happen. So I want to be able to say, I want to submit to the text of scripture. I believe it's true. I believe everything it says I think disobeying scripture is disobeying God, period, the end. It's authoritative. It's authoritative. And, yeah, so, and, and so, I want to and want to take it how the author intended it. Right. Yeah. I wanna I wanna go, here's what the author really meant. And if the author was writing poetry, then I need to do some work to understand poetry. If the author was writing a history, then I need to understand what the author really was yeah. saying there. If I if it's apocalyptic, I wanna go, okay, what did he mean when he wrote this? Because that's how that's what he means by it. Yeah, it's like I, I don't know if you if you Google song of songs woman the images that come up is people like try to take what song of songs is describing the woman maybe don't do that <laughs> yeah I, i'm, I'm a little, always a little nervous to recommend google image searches i've never, I've never tried right. it but <laughs> we'll find an appropriate one and put it in the show notes but it's like this woman with the her teeth are sheep and her oh, oh her oh, hair gotcha. is like like has these animals in it uh-huh. and her neck is like pillars and and it this is like this non-human looking kind of free creature. But like the Song of Songs is describing this woman. It's trying to be metaphorical and beautiful. And Kids, get permission from your parents before you search Google. <laughs> That's how I first started reading my Bible a lot was in middle school. I was at a boys only group and they said, do not read the Song of Songs. <laughs> and I was like sold and I went and read it. But the, but so if you literally read Song of Songs, you are incorrectly reading it. And so there's certain places that if you read it literally, you're going to just butcher the text and it's not helpful. Okay. All right. A different category. Um, this is kind of, again, in kind of Christian living. So, so how do we have a healthy relationship with money and have a nice lifestyle? This person says, sometimes I feel guilty with wanting nice things, but I still want to maintain my relationship with God and not be distracted from what's most important. So can I honor God, have nice things, have a, upper middle class or upper class lifestyle. Um, yeah. Can I do that and honor God? How do I do that? Yeah. I do think that like that principle we talked about earlier that we're blessed to be a blessing is, is kind of a key foundational principle as it relates to stewarding the resources God's given. Um, I also think, uh, it's, it's fair and appropriate to enjoy the good things that God's given, uh, to his glory. You know, we want to obviously, um, appreciate those things as gifts from him. Um, but I think it's also super important to just 
pay attention to your conscience and to seek the Lord in prayer. Cause I, I don't know that there is like a really strict rule, like a certain percentage or a certain amount. I, I think there are guidelines that can be helpful, but, um, uh, you know, every, everybody's kind of led by the spirit uh, in this area. I, I think the, the default toward generosity seems like a default toward the heart of God for sure. Um, so that feels appropriate. I think if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this, uh, guiltless enjoyment of blessing from God and says like enjoying the fruit of your labor is good. Uh, elsewhere talks about not muzzling the ox as they, uh, reap the benefit they've gone on. I think I have a couple of friends who do pretty well financially and, one of them gives about 25% of their money away and one of them gives around 30 to 35% of their money away. How do you know that? How do you know that's what they give? Cause I asked, they come to me asking this question. Okay. And one of them goes, you know, this whole like rich man entering the eye of the needle thing. I always thought, well, that verse is for someone else. And all of a sudden that verse applies to me and Holy smokes, uh, am I going to get smited? And, and so we'll talk about like generosity in the Old Testament and how like the tithe is this minimum, but then there's also like this principle of when you have these big fields, you don't harvest the corners of it so the poor can glean. And and generally speaking, that if you're were a pretty wealthy person in Israel, you're probably going to be giving away twenty five to thirty percent of your income, and a lot of the rest of it you're devoted you're devoting to leveraging, um, to creating more capital, creating more opportunity, leaving a bigger inheritance. And so it's not like there's like this, once you're giving 30%, then do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. But I do think that, um, I, I talked to folks who are like becoming or recently relatively wealthy and going at some point you maximizing your, you enjoying the fruit of your labor without guilt, you being extremely generous to the point where your people in your other, in your income bracket are like shocked at how much you're able to give away. And you're not just kind of buying into the consumer belief that then my next purchase is going to provide me the happiness I don't have, but you're like actually providing like real meaningful joy and connection as you enjoy these things. You're not just kind of uh, going on safaris by yourself to say, tell people you could, if you're doing it, keeping up with the Joneses thing, you're not going to, it's, it's empty and you'll end up an yeah. addict in one direction. But I think if you're going bonkers generous and you are, rightly leveraging your capital for the sake of your the next generation and you are doing whatever, I don't think there needs to be any guilt associated with right enjoyment of blessings from God. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of first Timothy six and first Timothy six. He says, uh, Paul writes a few things. He, he says, um, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many fangs, mm -hmm. many pangs. I'm sorry. He says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's it's kind of this dangerous thing. So if it's like, so I think the person asking this question would have to gauge, okay, I want nice things. How bad do I want them? Yeah. Whose kingdom am I you know, building? Like, why do I want them? Um, which those aren't like phony questions to just guilt you into like being more generous. Like that's just a legitimate question is going like, uh, how much of this is, like going, like I can, like one of the things I've seen over time is like I used to only buy cheap things because I only could buy cheap things and cheap things break quickly. And now I have an opportunity usually to go, oh, that's going to cost a little more. It's also going to last longer and be better for the long haul. Right. So that's one reason to have nice things. Another reason to have nice things is 
so that people go, ooh, ah, wow, you're amazing, right? Um, And then it says later in chapter 6, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides richly who provides us with everything to enjoy. So that's an interesting thing to go, okay, God's trying to give you things to enjoy. That's wonderful. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And so I think that kind of says all of that is like, be careful about your desires. Um, Don't not enjoy this. Those are your good gifts of God. And also be rich in good works. Yeah. Am I trying to achieve something through money that is only found in the Lord? Uh, like whether it's peace of mind or status or acceptance or a six approval, yeah. those sorts of things. All right. Now there were a couple of questions uh, in this um, next category. It's sort of theology and it's sort of just our church, um, but they all related to kind of women in leadership. Uh, you know, why don't we have women elders, um, different things like that. Here was kind of my favorite, uh, my favorite way that the question was asked. So I'll do it. I'll do this one. So, I've been around a long time, and I'm fairly familiar with our beliefs about women in ministry. I agree with these beliefs, but as a young woman, I have a hard time wrestling with the limited opportunities available to me. Do you have any encouragement for someone in my position? So what I like about that is that's not someone taking a pot shot. That's someone going like, no, I, I know what our church believes, and I think I agree with that. Um, I agree with these beliefs, but I'm also feeling like there's limited opportunities for me. Um, yeah, what-, what would you what would you tell me? You know, I'd be curious how to de- like, how would you guys define what are the l- limitations? Like what are the limited opportunities? So I think when you start talking about uh, women leadership, people tend to go to one or two texts first and they either go to first Timothy two twelve, and then talk about authoritative teaching. It's not right for women to have teaching authority. And, the way that we understand that right now is that teaching authority is located in the office of elder, and we understand that Paul is limiting the office of elder, which is like the pater familias, the father of the family, to men, that men uh, as elders are meant to be these uh, vicars of the father, and so there's something about families and fathers that it's kind of located to the authoritative teaching. And so right now we see that as being the office of pastor elder, which we see as functionally synonymous within scripture. Um, we also think it's a pastor's jobs to be equipping the saints work of ministry, not necessarily doing ministry. And so doing ministry, like, uh, you know, ladies teach in a variety of contexts to both men and women, old and young in our church, uh, ladies lead and administrate and delegate to men and women in a variety of contexts in our church. Mm-hmm. And so right now, the only time, the only, real thing that we see is um, positionally limited would be the office of elder pastor. And the other thing would be right now we understand that the pulpit would be a kind of a locus of authoritative teaching. And really it's kind of the disseminating and managing of congruence with the membership document or membership packet, like our, which is like our governing document and constitution of sorts. So that being said, um, most of our pastors, elders don't even do those things. And so that's uh, kind of a rare deal. But so the other main text people go to is Romans 16, where Paul's listing off all his um, awesome partners in ministry. Mm-hmm. And a ton of them are women. And looking at all these women who are um, teaching and shaping and discipling and administrating various forms of ministry and looking at the 
radical countercultural nature of the inclusion and elevation of women in the mission of God and mission of the church. And so I mostly hear that question and I just feel sad. And I'm also kind of curious uh, what opportunities they feel like they've been presently excluded from. And if they've talked to one of us about that, because if there's like a burden to uh, teach, I think part of my role is to locate, recruit and equip people who are gifted and help them use their gifts in a variety of ways. And so I think kind of working through that, but it's mostly, I hear that question. I mostly feel grieved. If, if you're judging um, opportunity by kingdom impact, there's almost limitless opportunity Mm. for both men and women. If you're judging opportunity, especially historically by uh, occupational, like, like the ability to support a family by getting a salary, getting paid on a church staff, Mm -hmm. most churches, only have uh, limited resources and, and, you know, we'll invest those resources in a, in a pastor, a male pastor uh, for a lot of reasons. And um, so it's been harder for women to be the, maybe the chief breadwinner in a home occupationally working for a church. I, I don't think um, necessarily that that has to be the, the case going forward. Um, but yeah. Well, that even sort of assumes that like having a, an important staff position in a church right. is the highest level of ministry impact. impact. Yeah. I think there's plenty of people making more ministry impact than I am. Oh gosh. It's just, yeah. it just looks different. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's interesting cause I look at it and go like, okay, um, there are limits in our, based on our theology and our practice of this. Um, one would be, we wouldn't have women elders, but as, uh, as I think about our elder conversations, especially around decisions, I, I can't really think of things that where we wouldn't have also talked with key women in our church about it, kind of the mothers of the church about it and gotten input. And that input yeah. then informs those elder decisions. So I think even our biggest decisions are um, not necessarily made with women in the room, but with women's voices being heard. Yeah. Um, and then, and then it would be the preaching on Sunday. Everything else is, is kind of fair game. Um, and a lot there depends on, you know, someone's, uh, experience and ministry and skill. And, but I would say one of the things that's been hard for a lot of women is because of kind of, I think, especially the kind of tradition that a lot of women have grown up in, in church, they haven't had the same opportunities to develop. Yeah. They haven't been given the internships. They haven't been given the, here's how to preach and how to teach and how to put something together. And so, you know, someone might say, well, they don't do that because they're not as good at it. And you might say, well, they're not as good at it because they haven't been given the opportunities to develop it. And so I think that is one of the things we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think hopefully people as they listen, even just kind of hear our hearts there of going like, we're, we're trying to open those doors yeah. more rather than close them while maintaining uh, you know, conviction based on what we see in the scriptures. When I've talked to women about this, um, some folks have kind of a shame response related to this. And shame would say there's something intrinsically missing or wrong with you. Um, and to the degree that that's been communicated, um, I, I would just really adamantly deny that. I, we don't believe the scriptures are teaching that there's something intrinsically um, better about men that qualifies them for certain levels of leadership that's not, that's not there in women. It's much more of a role and a function um, designed to kind of 
display and image the beauty of the Trinity, where even within the Trinity, all, all three persons, equally God, equally respectable, equally valuable and dignified, play different roles. And so we believe that there are um, functions in the church, there are roles in the church and roles in the family that are designed to image that kind of oneness um, with distinct roles. So it's not about, um, you know, the son couldn't have done as good of a job doing something as the spirit. It's just these are the roles that they've taken on, and we, we see it similarly in the, in the church. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think that that picture of the body, and not one can be the eye, no one can be the ear, no one can be the hands. I do think it's even hard in terms of just the limits of opportunities because there's a sense in which, like Luke and I talk about, I think if you both just said, what do you like to do? We'd probably both like to preach 48 times a year. (laughs) And, And, you know, because we both like to do it and we both would like, but Luke for a long time has only preached like 32. Is that right? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Part of that's with the goal of creating opportunities. Other we pastors don't do that. Right. And there's other people on our staff who would, like to preach and maybe don't get the chance to ever or maybe only once a year and that's hard and so i think there there are certain like extremely public things that are just limited on the basis of limits not even necessarily like convictions and that's just kind of coming to grips with that is kind of hard but yeah i also think there's there's some of it's an exposure thing right like i think we have a number of women who have real significant teaching and leadership ministry it's just you don't see it on sunday in the same way and so if you don't know about those things then you might assume oh there's nothing for me to do here yeah like vicky's counseling workshops she's a phenomenal teacher phenomenal bible teacher shaper of people uh when robin's taught parenting stuff i took her class you know i submitted to her teaching yep and it was helpful to me as a young parent uh there are other christina leading surge christina you mentioned marty and and joyce and 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 joyce their leadership with marriage and Christina like facilitate teaches surge and that's like one of like our main incubators for people's theological minds and they're all great solid theological women and there's like and Jody teaches on in our rooted Mm -hmm. class and so there's just a variety of um, people and places like I think about what Laura does with curriculum and shaping children holy smokes if you think that's not like super substantial and significant You know, yeah. like creating biblical literacy in the minds of young kids, you can't really put a price on that. And she's shaping the curriculum for that, which is not even, that's probably more impactful than teaching. She does teach and she does a good job, but shaping curriculum is like our membership packet. Like she's doing that type of stuff. For yeah, us. Nikki so, Reeves leading worship. Oh man, she can lead you to the you, throne room. You teach through singing songs. So I think there's different forms of teaching sure. and admonishing. And I think that's one of the hard things. I do think the pulpit is probably the primary ministry of the church, um, but it's, and by primary, I mean like most obvious. Like, yeah. But if you look at like the th- different things that get fingerprints onto people and shape them and form them into Christ likeness, it like there's a, a lot of different people shaping and leading yeah. stuff. All right. Well, last question for this uh, bonus episode is, uh, and then I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll do another one. So we're again, we're not going to get to all the eighty questions, but we. There's some more here that I still want us to talk about. So, um, but here's the last one for today. Would any of you guys consider being a youth pastor? I'm hoping that uh, Josh Reese didn't submit that (laughs) since he's our youth pastor. And I don't think that was a request or maybe it is. I don't know. But uh, would you, Seth, would you consider being a youth pastor? Oh man, there was a song that came out last year in the pandemic, or I guess in the pandemic, you know, (laughs) and 
it was called Old Church Basement uh-huh. by Maverick City Music. Yeah, great song. And it was all about like how now there's these lights in these stages and it's kind of tainted by that. But the purity of what initially got people hooked, these guys hooked on singing and praising was like just a group of people in an old church basement, no cameras, no microphones, just yep. some out of tune, bad guitar. They barely knew how to play it. And that there's like a purity to it. And I think about when I got started doing ministry, I was leading music, running events, leading a high school boys small group when I was a freshman in college. And like that was like my hook Mm. on shaping next generation leading stuff. And so there is like a, a clarity of role and that like, there's a something that I would love to, Mm. I would love that if, uh, at, at this point, I don't think that's the best use of my current, I've talked about you know, vocational power or whatever earlier. I don't yeah. think it's like best, but I would really like that. Mm-hmm. I'd have to learn to stay up past eight thirty. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the biggest adjustment. That would be well, and a lot, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you're. Um, I mean, I think you have a real gift, especially at camps and at retreats, and you you do have an ability to inhabit the world of teenagers, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's a real gift. And yet, I agree with you. I don't think that would be the best, the best use of of you know, the full kind of host of gifts that God's given you. What about you, Matthew? Would you ever be a youth pastor? Yeah, I'm having a hard time with the question, would I ever consider? I mean, I would if the Lord gave me a reason to, but I don't currently feel like Here's a reason one. to consider it, this question. <laughs> uh, so you're I mean, saying not, basically no. It's not really a, a desire that's on my mind right now. I mean, I absolutely am thankful for youth pastors and believe that they matter a ton. Yeah. I don't feel called to it. Yeah, I feel like, uh, I think probably similar to you, Seth, like I think I could enjoy it. I think I could do a good job at it. Um, I think it's really important. I also think um, there's other ways that God has called me to make an impact. And and I think some of it is to support a lot of what happens in youth ministry and to kind of pick my spots where I can have a more direct influence there. Um, so I wouldn't be against it. I, part, there's times where I think, man, this would be fun. I also think for me, kind of the way I'm wired after a couple years, I'd probably go, eh, I'm ready to do something different. So there's a seniors ministry director named Dottie Hartzler at my old church. And okay. she led the seniors ministry, which was called XYZ, which was the most honestly, <laughs> the most honestly named ministry in the history of the world. Uh, they called it extra years of zest and for senior adults, not seniors in high school, senior adults. Okay. Yeah. It was extra years of zest and the end of the alphabet was why they called it. And she said, and I remember talking to her when I was an intern, like 19, and Dottie said, one thing you got to know, all ministry is middle school ministry. And I said, what do you mean by that? She's like, it's the same thing. It's sexual tension. It's cliques. It's popular kids. It's less popular kids. It's uh. people who are in, people who are out. It's new people feeling comfortable. It's people disappointing you with their maturity. All ministry is middle school ministry. Mm. Just mostly adults develop better mechanisms for hiding their middle schoolness but it's there in all of us wow wow the leaders the leaders the followers all ministries middle school ministry and so lord have mercy lord have mercy on us and i feel like that's true for me you know there's a little middle school boy who's insecure and wants to be noticed in me and that's true of everyone in our church and so we're, we're all doing youth ministry kind of yeah 
Well, guys, this has been fun. Uh, Seth and Matthew, thank you guys. Yeah, this has uh, been good. And we'll uh, we'll pick up with some more good questions next time. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Hey.